my daddy's gone on, my grandpa's gone on, my great-grandpa's gone on. But you still live. You know, the, the spray is still here. Well, they tell me of a home where no storm clouds rise. Tell me of a home far away. Hello and welcome. You're listening to It's Still Lives, the Fox Fire podcast, where we take you on a journey through Southern Appalachian history, one story at a time. I'm your host, Kami Ahrens, Curator and Director of Education at the Fox Fire Museum. And I am so excited to bring the Civic Imagination Project to you all. The more I learn about the project, the more I get excited about the possibilities of this. And as you'll hear in this podcast episode, Sangeeta, Sam, and Henry have gone all across the world spreading these concepts of civic imagination and focusing on bringing people from disparate backgrounds, maybe from opposing viewpoints together in a shared conversation about what the future could look like for us if we were given all possibilities. The imagination is such a powerful tool. If we think about what imagination does in a community, it leads to a lot of storytelling. So from the Cherokee to European settlers to the blended culture that's come out of this region today, storytelling is such an important part of how we express ourselves and how we understand who we are in this place. Foxfire has certainly been a part of that storytelling culture by going out into the community and capturing the stories and memories of elders and other community members of all ages, really, about how they understand their place in Appalachia and what different parts of Appalachian culture mean to them. So I'm going to leave it to Sangeeta, Sam, and Henry to take us on this journey through learning more about the Civic Imagination Project. The next few episodes of our podcast are going to feature interviews specifically with fellows who are participating in a Civic Imagination Incubator. So I am one of six people who were selected for this first run of the incubator in Appalachia. The goals of the project were to look at creatives working in and around central Appalachia and how those creatives are using different media to tell stories and engage people in their community. And I can't wait to introduce you to each of these unique individuals over the course of the next few months. I'm Henry Jenkins. I'm a professor at the University of Southern California, and I'm streaming today from downtown Los Angeles. I am Svita Shrestova, um, the Director of Research and Co-PI of the Civic Imagination Project. And I'm streaming, I'm going to get specific, I'm streaming from Altadena in California. And I'm Sam Ford. I'm Executive Director of a nonprofit called Accelerate Kentucky. I'm a regular uh, collaborator with Civic Imagination Project and an Innovation and Cultural Fellow uh, at the Western Kentucky University Innovation Campus, joining you today from Bowling Green, Kentucky. Um, so first, I just want a summary as best as you guys can give on what the Civic Imagination Project is and how it came about. We're using the word civic rather than political. The political would refer to struggles over power in traditional partisan politics, whereas the civic refers to the things that hold us together as members of a community. So the political is about politics, or, or, the political is about power, the civic is a social and cultural phenomenon. And as we seek to understand what the civic is and what it does, 
we were drawn to the role of the imagination. So what is, what's the work of the imagination in terms of civics? Well, first of all, before we can build a better world, we have to imagine what a better world might look like. And that's the kind of notion of utopianism that often, and we're seeing more and more pushes to imagine better, to imagine differently in our conversations as we come through the horror show that was 2020, 2021 and find our way back out from it again. Secondly, we have to imagine ourselves as civic agents capable of making change in the world. Are we empowered to make changes or are we simply overwhelmed by the world around us? We have to imagine ourselves as part of a larger community of people, right? Who share some interest in common. Uh, some people say that's called imagined community. We like the phrase imagining community because it's not a fixed project. It's an ongoing activity of continually imagining together the world we live in together. We may have to imagine the perspectives of people who are different from us, who have different experiences than we do. We may, and that's certainly something that's come to head in recent years. We need to imagine a process of change and how does change happen? You know, we need to, for those who are most oppressed or marginalized, we may have to imagine freedom, democracy, you know, dignity before we directly experience it. Our everyday spaces become charged with imagination of those communities. So space is something we're often imagining together. So you put all that together and that's the underlying idea of civic imagination. How are we thinking uh, together about the world we want to live in? And how are we thinking together about how we change the world to be a place that all of us can live in? I think the one piece that I would add to that is that we're very interested in, yes, the process of imagination, but also how we collectively uh, tap the stories in our lives and push against the boundaries of those stories in nurturing that imagination. I think that sometimes we think about the imagination as existing in a vacuum, and we certainly, that's not the approach we take. We The imagination is fed and inspired and challenged by everything that we are surrounded by in our lives. And it's also, to us, made richer through connections with others, through connections in speaking with them, but also challenging them and working through materials with them. So for us, when we then moved into thinking about how we were going to support the civic imagination, these processes around how we work with stories were what really emerged as something we wanted to focus on. Um, to be clear, we are based at a university, that is Henry and I are based at a university, but we were very keen and committed and just our work was moving us towards working outside the university just as much as we theorize and research and write up. But we wanted to build a project that was in the communities with workshops and activities and listening to people and engaging them directly. And that is what the Civic Imagination Project has become over the past seven years, I believe, we've been in existence. And before that, we were we were coming off of another project. So this has really been a long journey and a coming of age for this for this initiative. So where we are now at is that we do think deeply about themes and the topics related to civic imagination, and we're just as engaged in developing 
activities um, and engagements that allow us to work with communities directly. So um, I would actually say it's about 50-50 in terms of the split of our of our work. Uh, we're, you know, we're thinking about cookbooks, we're thinking about workshops that we can bring into communities. We're thinking about actual support that we can have with media makers, which is how we're landing in the, in the work that we're going to be discussing here. Um, about a couple of years ago, or maybe two or three years ago, we started to think about how we might think about the civic imagination in the process of creating media and creative stories, because most of the work that we'd done before that was on the sort of reception side of things. How are people reworking the stories that are in their midst? What if we think about working directly with makers uh, and thinking about how they might think about their stories from a, through a civic imagination lens? And we were really lucky we had the opportunity to explore that through, through several collaborations here in Los Angeles. Um, we came out of that and we're like, there's this, this has something, this has legs, this is important. And how might we think about building a program that would really bring people together to take them through this, through this process that would invite them to think about their existing or future projects and how they might incorporate civic imagination all the way from ideation through to getting their work out to their audiences or working with communities directly. And we thought, well, we could think about this for a year <laughs> or we could just try it out and uh, build it in dialogue with folks directly. And we had been working with Sam Ford for a while. I mean, Sam Ford, I feel like we've, I mean, I don't even know when we first met, but we've been for a long time. I feel like your thinking has influenced our thinking. I hope our thinking has influenced your thinking. And it just so also happened that one of the first workshops that we ran on the Civic Imagination Project in 2017, when we were just starting to pilot our workshops, was in Bowling Green. It was around the future of work. So there was a like a origin story of our own that took us back to that region. And it just felt like there was also interest from Western Kentucky University and a lot of pieces just fell right into place to run the pilot of the Civic Imagination Incubator there. We share, as Sangeeta said, a lot of uh, relationships and histories together amongst us that uh, lead us not to remember exactly when we first crossed paths. We've just always known one another um, with uh, in some prior life, perhaps. Uh, so uh, Henry uh, was one of my grad school mentors, and we were working on a project together that led to a book that we co-authored authored with a colleague, Joshua Green, called Spreadable Media. And as we were wrapping up that book and its latter, that project in its latter stages, Henry and Sangita were really working together on the formative research that led to the Civic Imagination Project. So I feel like our thinking and those two endeavors were were really deeply ingrained from the beginning. And so after having gone through uh, a series of pilots while I was working at a company called Univision um, with the Civic Imagination Project team, uh, that was involving media makers that were primarily journalists um, thinking about how these concepts impact the stories they tell in their communities that was supported by the California Endowment, um, really got interested in, in how civic imagination way of thinking and methodology and concepts can, can converge with um, 
media making and, and storytelling. Um, so the workshop that we did here really kicked off a series of conversations in Kentucky about the future of the economy, making room for both emerging technologies on the one hand and storytelling practices on the other, especially as we see the um, the real possibility through new technologies and, and methods of circulation for content producers to be based anywhere. I mean, some of those were core concepts in and around uh, Henry's and my work with spreadable media. So really starting to see that take effect and people exploring what it means to be able to uh, circulate content not driven by kind of traditional concentrated media industries and, and how those things take new shapes, lead many places like Kentucky, which has produced a strong history and legacy of storytellers, many of whom were to take their skills to concentrated distribution market towns like Nashville for music just across the border or to Los Angeles for, for the media industry. So for our local partners here, this idea that as technology changes, how is it possible to explore storytelling both uh, uh, you know, professionally or as part of multiple side hustles in, in someone's life and career? How do we think about that? How do we support content creators to be able to uh, seriously explore what they do and do it in place in new ways? Um, and at the same time, make sure that those stories may connect to place in a deep way if they're going to be making media from this region. How does that tie to what makes it especially ingrained in this region? And how does that sort of lead to a flourishing of new creative activity? So in my, as Sangeeta said, it's really a, a convergence of uh, a lot of different work, research, ways of thinking that really perhaps, uh, especially driven by COVID, leading people to rethink a lot of assumptions, kind of cleared the way for, for exploring this pilot. And some of my colleagues here with Accelerate Kentucky, we do a lot of thinking about what we call lean startup mentality, a concept that's certainly circulated in entrepreneur circles, but rather than build the big program, and then figure out how to go get, you know, a seven figure grant to execute it. Just start doing something and see where that takes you. Uh, um, and that's really what we've done with this incubator. We know what we want to do. We've got just a little bit of seed funding. Let's just try something and see how it grows. Uh, and uh, we've been very fortunate, I think, to have great partners, but also, and most importantly, six phenomenal folks to join us on that journey. I think it's great that y'all just started it um, and, you know, it gives it a lot of opportunity and flexibility to grow too. So maybe just if you share a little bit more in detail about why specifically Appalachia, I know you mentioned Kentucky, what, what is it about Appalachia that you felt was the right place for this incubator to begin its journey? Well, I think Sam and I are both arguably have roots in the region. I'm not going to say I'm from Appalachia. I grew up in Atlanta and spending two out of every seven days from spring when the warm hit in the spring to the late when the cold really hit in the fall going to North Georgia to Lake Burton uh, for more than a year. I had uh, Raven County 
as my mailing address while I was living in a cabin in the woods by myself writing. So in many ways, it's a, how I like to imagine my identity, right? I love Atlanta, but I also feel strong roots north of that in the North Georgia mountains. So when Sam started talking about the Innovation Center in Kentucky, uh, I said, why don't we make it a regional thing and let's make just as long as it dips far enough south that we can at least get North Georgia into the map of this project. I'm on board because I'm really looking for ways of getting back, reclaiming some of my Southern roots. I've been out of the South longer than I lived there, sad to say, but it still is home and it still has a strong call on me. To find our common ground, we have to claim Appalachia as that space. And I like to tease uh, Sangeeta for being an honorary mountain girl, since she's raised, at least in part, in the foothills of the Himalayas. But I'm also from coal country, so there you go. Yeah. <laughs> the other side of my identity. <laughs> so I can't claim, I mean, I guess if we're going through a little bit of our backgrounds here, I can't claim any specific regional affinity, but I will say um, that there, as Henry introduced the civic imagination, it's also about reimagining place and reimagining how we think about our relationship to place. And so it feels really fitting that actually imagining place and imagining regions and the shared, um, a shared place and a shared space is part of the civic imagination incubator. So I feel like, you know, just like you said, this was an, as a pilot, this in itself is a pilot to try and see what we come up with, because if we accepted an, a given demarcation like state or city, we would be falling into an accepted definition of what place is. And I think it's a it's kind of a it's an interesting invitation to to think about it differently. Yeah, and I think for me, one of the reasons that Kentucky becomes an interesting place to do this gets precisely at what Henry was saying. Um, many people would say Kentucky is a Midwestern state. It's on the Ohio River. The Cincinnati airport is in Kentucky. Uh, many would qualify Kentucky as Southern. Kentucky is certainly uh, Appalachian and, and, you know, at least on the eastern half of the state. So being at that intersection of geographic identities uh, as a state has led to a lot of reimagining and discussion about what does it mean to be a Kentuckian, what ties do people have identity-wise to region. Kentucky and Tennessee are tied for bordering the most number of other states. So, uh, you know, how do people navigate that identity? Um, you know, in, our, in, in the case of Kentucky, with one border touching the Mississippi River on one end of the state and the other squarely in the heart of central Appalachia. Um, you know, and certainly the Civil War, as Henry said, doesn't help because Kentucky was uh, not officially part of the Confederacy or the Union. It was a, con a contested state. Um, Abraham Lincoln was born in Kentucky. Jefferson Davis was too. One's family moved south, the other's family moved north when they were both kids. So that is sort of the narrative here, as much as those sorts of borders have identified in the past how people think of themselves. Perhaps what an interesting ground to explore questions of reimagining identity and thinking about 
who we are uh, collectively in ways that hopefully impact folks who would identify as Appalachian or Midwestern or Southern kind of being at the intersection of those cultural borders. Uh, so that, I mean, I, I find myself at the heart of those questions, but as we started working on these projects and I spent time with folks from Appalachian coal country, the thing we discovered really quick were there were all these commonalities in our culture really defined by um, a certain ethos, his shared history, um, and everything that surrounded uh, uh, an industry like coal mining. So, uh, you know, for for me, that shared history becomes a really important part of of thinking through who we are. Yeah, I, I, I to build on some stuff that Sam is talking about, I'm interested in Appalachia as a way of reclaiming an identity that is not grounded necessarily in the Confederacy, right? I mean, we are in a period of time of, active revision of what it means to be Southern. Uh, the South has largely clung to a definition of itself that was defined by a four-year period of history. Maybe we extend outward in both directions and make it an eight or nine-year phase of its history, but not what its history has been throughout the 20th century and not what its culture is today. That is, I'm excited by a multicultural, multiracial South, not a biracial South. Yes, black and white has shaped Southern history in really powerful ways, but so have the Cherokees and North Georgia, and so have Latina, Latin peoples, and so have now increasingly Asian and Arab peoples and African people who were not part of the slave experience. They're all shaping the modern South, and we need to figure out how to reclaim those identities. You know, yeah, these questions of, of multicultural, multi-ethnic ways of understanding yourself, looking at it from a context sitting here in Bowling Green, a refugee resettlement town, uh, college town, uh, right now at the heart of uh, automotive and, and other industries that are bringing uh, folks from all sorts of cultural backgrounds into this place, you know, I think that question of what does it mean to be Appalachian, what does it mean to be Kentuckian needs to take into account those significant uh, populations of Bosnians and uh, Burmese and Cambodian and, and now more recently Afghan immigrants and so many other folks who've ended up here who have shaped this area, the city that I live in. And I think those folks are often especially invisible. Um, because they don't fit into the predominant cultural narrative. So I think so much of the civic imagination projects work in terms of having people, you know, imagine future identities, remix their stories, et cetera. A lot of the experiences that Sangita has helped lead in, in Salzburg and, and elsewhere really come into play here as well, that it's about uh, what a colleague of ours uh, on a pro some projects we're working on, David Curry, has called, a historian calls, our usable history. Where do we want to head and what, what parts of our history become narratives we want to carry forward into that future? Because it's the parts of our origin story that shapes where we want to go. And you can't ignore the bad parts of your history and you've got to embrace the complexity of 
of your origin story, but you also need to especially focus on and build on those cornerstones of that history that reflect where you're headed. I, and I think what you're hitting on is so timely. Um, and I think, are we seeing a shift in our culture that is ready to make these changes, these, you know, that that's ready to accept these because I I'm hearing great things from y'all and it's echoing a lot of conversations that I have in my own community. But what I always hear from people at the end of a conversation is like, what do we do about it? How do we make those changes? And I was reflecting on this the other day, you know, as one does, <laughs> and, um, you know, I was like, what is happening in our culture that might be able to harness some of these ideas? Where can we, where can we latch on to popular culture? But, you know, I've been thinking a lot about this like multiverse stuff that's coming out. Mm, yeah. And I'm wondering if there's a plurality emerging in our culture where people are, are showing finally some interest, whether they can acknowledge it or not, to adapt to these new identities and these new decisions is there an avenue or a door opening for us do you see that we can help guide these definitions of culture and make them something new yeah i mean i think a future definition of southern culture is up for us at right now to redefine without ob obligations to the past now that's why an incubator is an interesting space right it's a space where we can step outside of our normal routines, learn from each other across pretty broad range of differences in the folks, different media, different races and ethnicities, different sexualities, different genders, different generations coming together, right? And just trying things out, exploring ideas out of which we may get some key themes or narratives. And, you know, each of your partners in the incubator have narratives from the past and the future that they're trying to explore through this work. And then you have to test them again, see which ones gain broader public acceptance, right? And popular culture is one of those spaces where we test the identity uh, or to test the viability of future visions. I guess the only thing I'll add, Cami, your conversations with the other folks demonstrate this sort of discussion and, and set of differences about how people think about their regional identity, that you have people who are from a shared space who feel shared identity in some places and not others based on perhaps their own experiences, their own backgrounds, their families' backgrounds, migration patterns. And I think that's a that's a key piece of it. We can define it to some degree on the past and, and, and history comes into this, but so much of it is also about our communities of the present and even more importantly, our visions for communities for the future that, uh, uh, that can draw on elements of that past, uh, various shared origin stories, uh, yet how do we come together? So I guess in, in that case, the multiverse can become a really helpful concept of how people explore those various facets of their cultural identity and backgrounds, both on an individual level, but on a communal level, too. So I was going to elaborate on that further, bringing it back to the Civic Imagination Project to kind of share just how we approach this and how we and, and what we have devised or developed as 
opportunities to in that invite people to engage with their identities and with their values and with their memories and aspirations around their lives in this way. So what we have found is that stories, whether they're personal stories that they that people hold dear or popular culture stories that have a emotional that that they have an emotional tie to are really important and powerful gateways into having these conversations in communities. And so I just want to like for example, so we developed activities that help communities come together in this way to explore I guess intersectional identities would be the term I'd put there, but it's really shared values where the sort of the messiness of understanding where people connect, where they disconnect, but not in a sort of, not in a confrontational way per se, not in a sort of us versus them, but more in a, it's complicated. These are the ways, and this is, these are the underlying values that are at play here. So for example, we work with, memory objects, you've experienced this. We work with memory objects where we ask people to bring in a object from their past. And this is depending on what the session is and what the context is, this could be related to a specific area of their lives. So it could be food, it could be work, it could be their learning, or it could be sort of the general history. And what inevitably happens, even though we tell people they can bring whatever they want, so they could bring something that they have a very superficial tie to. But what we found, and these are strangers coming together uh, much of the time, is that people just really want to go deep. They want to bring the most, one of the most personal things they can bring because they do want to share their inner selves. And by doing that, they open up a vulnerability and they invite trust. And then we ask people to work with the, those objects. So it's not like they, they just present these stories and they stay there. It's then we then ask them to put them in dialogue with each other to say, what what do these objects have in common? How are they different? Um, what stories would you associate with them if they were imbued with superpowers <laughs> to bring it back to the multiverse? Um, and then we take these memories and these objects that are associated from the past and put them into the future. So we help, we help move people all through fiction, right? And to a certain degree, if from the past into the future, collaboratively together. And so of course there's a lot of messiness and having to renegotiate and and figure out what's going to happen. And a lot of times, you know, we're working with people who are not necessarily professionals in the creative space. So they're they're having to struggle with just allowing themselves to be creative. And what happens is that people find these connections. Um, they find ways to approach each other and see new commonalities between each other that they may not have seen. Um, and they're also vulnerable with each other in ways that would, they wouldn't have been if they just come to the table and just said, let's talk about our similarities and differences and where we have conflicts. Instead, they have just worked through stories that matter to them, but not held those stories so close to their heart that they couldn't be reworked. And, and what we found is that this is, I don't want to say it's magic because, you know, we're not supposed to believe in magic, but it is a really powerful tool. I, I have yet to see it fail in the many, 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 many iterations that I have seen it in now. And in a, in a lovely way, it's now also out of our control where people, it's in a book. Most of these sessions are written up in a book and they are now accessible to people. And we see, we hear all the time that it works um, and that people are able to take these methods and approaches and apply them in this way. And you mentioned that you've seen that it works. So what are the, the metrics that you use to track the success of the project? Well, it's always hard to measure something that's 
process oriented, right? That's like in process is where the success is. But I think for us, what we've also seen are, well, first of all, we have done exit interviews, post interviews, all that kind of thing. So we do have measures of impact in the sense of people assessing themselves as having had a meaningful experience. And we've also seen the these efforts endure. So um, Sam can talk about that in the case, the, in, the, in the context of Kentucky. We also ran um, one of our sessions in Arkansas and it led to the formation of a coalition, an interfaith coalition. So we have seen people take these methods and then use them as a starting point for various projects, mostly in the civic realm. And we've also seen um, in the con in um, other places, so again, outside of our control, which is the best case scenario, people use these um, methods as an ideation for creative projects, for creating content, for creating media, for jumpstarting engagements in their local communities. Um, for example, they did this in Pakistan where they ran some time ago, where they ran our workshops in multiple sites around the country and then used those to jumpstart local creative projects like murals and installations and events based on what came out of those sessions. So based on what they saw, then the community designed that and they got funding to do that. So we've seen that, which to me is evidence that it works. So as I'd mentioned, had a chance to work with the Civic Imagination Project team on some projects uh, with newsrooms when I was at Univision. Uh, around that time, uh, uh, they had started developing these workshop methods, and we had a chance to run one of the first of those workshops uh, six years ago in September 2017 um, here in Bowling Green. We had, in Kentucky, started this dialogue with some partner labs at MIT based on uh, exploring the future of work in Kentucky. How are people... Uh, what are the cultural narratives that people hold both inside the state and that are held about the state from the outside that shape the sorts of career paths uh, and career identities that people think are possible here? And how do we revisit those and dream what the future might be? So we were starting a dialogue primarily between Eastern, Eastern Appalachian Kentucky and the West Kentucky Coalfield area about those shared uh, identities and visions for the future. And it just became apparent that this civic imagination methodology could be a really powerful way to think about that vision and also bring groups from different sectors, from different places in the state together. So we brought together a, a coalition of folks from throughout the state, uh, 30-some going on 40 people uh, who were gathered. That led to uh, several relationships in that group gelling. Uh, it led to uh, Kentucky ultimately forming this Accelerate Kentucky nonprofit that I'm executive director of. That was through a program at MIT called the Regional Entrepreneurship Acceleration Program. Uh, so that is focused on how do regions build greater capacity in their innovation ecosystem and support innovation. So for us, the the sort of asset mapping and, and sort of economic development driven mentality of that MIT program layered 
with the civic imagination way of thinking that is so much about vision and, and strategic planning uh, became a great marriage. So it just seemed apropos that uh, the civic imagination incubator pilot be held here and somewhat uh, serendipitous that one of the areas of focus for Kentuckians dreaming about the future of the economy and seeing where there's strong possibility include emerging tech and and storytelling and where those sectors uh, overlap and intersect. Yeah, that's great. And that kind of leads into my next question. What, what do you guys have as a long-term vision for the incubator? What impact do you hope that this program makes and how do you hope to see it grow? For me, I am very interested in eventually developing materials and um, resources and other forms of support for um, folks who are in the space. So whoever like, I guess, in a way, the, the folks we have in the incubator right now um, that are accessible to them. So, you know, the, the incubator is its own process, but then I'm also looking to how might we develop materials that are resource, that are available to folks who are not necessarily part of the incubator as such. So that is something that I'm very interested to, to think about further as we get further down the road of this, but it's not limited to the folks who are part of the incubator proper per se, but there are ways that we're reaching out to a broader community. You know, I think a, the big picture is that we help support artists who are and media makers who are wanting to tell different stories about the region as they go out and try to execute on those stories. And we also observe what happens as that takes place. If we take our own civic imagination approaches and methodologies, we have, I think, some shared visions for the future or for what being a professional media maker might look like. It's particular to this incubator, um, our first goal, back to a lean startup, is can we put something together that is of any value to the six folks that we select in their individual journeys? So like to think in the course of the last few months, we feel like we've uh, achieved that goal. So then the goal starts to build. Well, how do you keep providing value to those six folks? How could that expand to additional folks who could come into that program? Are there opportunities for the six folks in the program currently to continue on in the program in a way that might even connect them with other folks we bring into the program? We don't know the answer to these questions. If you ladder it up to an even grander vision with my uh, Accelerate Kentucky and WKU hat on, do you provide an opportunity to build an ecosystem in, in this particular place or region that uh, supports creatives, whether it's one of many uh, elements of a portfolio career that they have or becomes their sole focus and profession, um, what resources does it take to build real support for media industries and and creator culture here in particular, and how could that be built on? Uh, and then, you know, also, how do we take this idea of merging civic imagination into world building and storytelling across media formats and bring that, as Sangeeta said earlier, to a wider variety of storytellers and creators 
I'm just amazed that y'all found such a creative and exciting and engaging way to really impact change and not just tell people what to do, but encourage people to, to make those conversations happen on their own too. So that's pretty incredible. Um, so if people want to learn more about the Civic Imagination Project, where should they go? I guess the first stop would be the our website, <laughs> obviously. It's civicimaginationproject.org to sort of entice people. It's not just an informational site. We also have a lot of resources on there. Like I said, the the workshop instructions. So actually the book, the, the book of how to run some our key workshops is uploaded to the site. We have some other toolkits. Um, there are a lot of links to podcasts we've done. So things, it's, it is a site that's uh, been loaded up with a lot of materials. So beyond that, they should just reach us out to us. Uh, folks should stay tuned because I think we'll, you know, be adding to those resources over time. I think that's a good sort of starter point and will be a good aggregation point. Uh, we're trying to take care through multiple media formats to share the story of what we're doing with the incubator with media outlets in the region through outlets like this podcast series. Uh, uh, really, uh, part of the goal is to learn what we're doing part of the goal is to share it as we go along but join in the process of help us figure it out yeah that's right we need all the help we can get absolutely and if the idea of you looking at popular culture and understanding how we imagine social and cultural change appeals check out our my podcast how do you like it so far which is about popular culture in a changing world and we deal with conversations every week on things like the multiverse and multiculturalism. Yeah, and for the Kentucky partners in this, um, following what's happening here in Kentucky, not specific to this pilot, but across these sorts of pilots of reimagining, you can visit acceleratekyorg and create-ic.com for the uh, work happening at the WKU Innovation Campus. Well, thank you all so very, very much. I really appreciate you taking the time. I know we've talked about a lot of this stuff, but it's great to have it on recording. And I think it's going to be really interesting to many of our podcast listeners. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. I hope you're as excited about this project as we are. If you want to find out more, you can just head over to civicimaginationproject.org or head over to foxfire.org. And scroll down to our blog post where you'll find all of the information and pictures and additional resources and links connected to today's talk. We have a lot of programming coming up at the museum this spring and summer. So if you're interested in engaging hands-on in some Appalachian crafts or activities or learning how to conduct your own oral histories, or you're just interested in learning more about Foxfire and our most recent book, The Foxfire Book of Appalachian Women, there is something out there for you for all ages. So please check out our events page and that's foxfire.org events. Please join us next month. We'll have the first featured interview with one of the Civic Imagination Incubator Fellows. And we'll be featuring those stories over the course of the next few months. You can learn about the work that they are doing in and around Appalachia. Thanks so much for joining us and we'll talk to you all next time. Take care. If you don't like that, you can throw it away. I like it. <laughs>